definitely think it's a self-discovery thing. I don't know if you can laugh someone's pain away for them. It's something that has to be internal and has to take place in a person's own time. As you go, you learn people as you learn the way way of being. Redefine the boundaries of creativity with some of today's most forward thinkers, doers, and creators. My name is Michel Laprise. I'm the creative guide at Cirque du Soleil and your host for today. It's been said that we have heart-stopping and mind-expanding shows that are inspired by how creativity intersects with other disciplines, even ones that aren't traditionally viewed as creative. The ideas for these shows, the stories, They can come from anywhere. We love clowning around at Cirque du Soleil. I mean, we are a circus after all, so we understand the important role that humor can play in our everyday lives. And when we're faced with hardships, quite often the way we deal with it is by using humor and sharing the jokes with other people. And it's true that, you know, at Cirque you deal with life and death. It can be stressful, so it's so important to have relief from comedy. And I strongly believe, and I say that in many tributes, that as a society, we need more clowning. It's essential. Today on the show, we're going to delve into this topic a bit more. How can we use humor to learn and grow as individuals and as a society? How does humor spark creativity? Right now, in the background, you're hearing the music of our touring show, Kuza. Kuza follows a melancholy loner named The Innocent, who's trying to find his place in the world. One day, he receives a giant jack-in-the-box in the mail, and when he opens it, he finds a character known as The Trickster. Now, The Trickster springs to life and fills The Innocent's world with color. He creates the world of Kuza, the world of the show, and brings the innocent into that world. Together, they go on a journey that explores fear, self-identity, recognition, and power. The concept of the show is a circus in a box, and the name reflects that. Kuza comes from Koza, which is Sanskrit for box, chest, or treasure. The show also combines two circus traditions, acrobatics and clowning. It plays around with just like positions such as strength versus fragility or turmoil versus harmony. That show explores these themes in a colorful melange that emphasizes humor above all. Today, we want to explore how being vulnerable can help us discover different ways, like comedy, to understand our place in the world. Joining us on our journey today is someone who has spent his life mastering the skill of making people laugh, whether they're laughing with him or laughing at themselves. 
Josh Johnson is intelligent, sensitive, empathic, eloquent, and hilarious. Emmy-nominated writer, performer, and NAACP Award winner from Louisiana by way of Chicago. He's currently living in New York, working as a writer on a daily show, and is a former writer and performer on The Tonight Show, starring Jimmy Fallon, where he made his late-night debut. Johnson's self-released comedy and music mixtape album, Elusive, has been described as live stand-up observational humor with musical compositions. Both elements wade in and out of political and social waters between the two arcs of the multi-genre epic. Johnson also co-hosts two podcasts, The Josh Johnson Show with fellow stand-up Logan Nielsen and Hold Up with a daily show colleague, Dulce Sloan. Josh, a very warm welcome to Sir the Sound. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate you. It's a honor. When did you start to consciously make people laugh? It did start when I was a kid. I was not known as the funniest person. I definitely wasn't like the most outgoing. So it, it surprised people when I went into comedy and everything. But I think that stand-up just lined up with everything that I find interesting and important about life. So to me, I think that when you are, you know, creative as a kid, there's a free-flowing creativity that you obviously, hopefully, never lose. But I think that when you decide to take on artistic endeavor as your you know, main source of income and everything, that's when you realize that there are so many layers to creativity when it's not fun and when there's a deadline and finding ways to, to be creative all the time even when you don't feel like it or you don't feel creative, creativity can also be that feeling of pure inspiration. And when you don't have that, it's very hard sometimes to, to make something, you know? And so it started when I was a kid that I thought like, oh, I, I, I like making people laugh. I'm not the funniest person, but I'm going to keep doing this. It didn't, in my mind, become possibility for it to be a job until much later. You write a lot for television, And, you know, you have to be aware of, of the news and things that happen in the very day. So you, your process sometimes has to be fast. How do you deal with that? How do you put yourself in the zone that will allow you to be efficient and not stressed out by that? Let's say you are in a situation where there's a deadline or like I was saying before, you don't feel the inspiration or something, but you still have to create something. I think that in those situations, you have to find the sort of math and science and whatever your art is. And then that is how you bridge that gap. So as long as you understand the formula for jokes, you can still make a joke, even if you're not feeling funny that day, and even if they need a joke in five minutes. And I think that that's where you find how to do it. The feelings around it are very different because you won't necessarily get to put passion and tons and tons of thought. But I think that there's a time and, and place for all that stuff. You know, if it if you're watching my special, if you're watching an hour of me doing comedy, these are all things that I've thought of very deeply for a long time. If you're watching what I've written for TV, it's more than likely I wrote it that day. And so I think that everything finds its place because if it took all of us 
feeling inspired and feeling ready, then very few things would get made. Some beautiful things would still get made. Don't get me wrong. When people put that thought and attention into their creativity, you're rarely going to have something that isn't worth sharing. But it's not always the case where you have those luxuries. This is why it's a job and it's a craft that you perfect. I'm a recovered actor. And at the acting school, one of my teachers used to say, you need to have a great technique because not all nights will be like, oh my God, I'm inspired, you know, and I forget everything and I'm just in the... No, no. So the technique is there for those moments that you cannot rely on inspiration. And where did you learn your technique? Did you go to like a school or you learned as you go, you learned from people? I think it's as you go, you learn from people, as you learn your way of being, right? Because for stand-up specifically, there there are no rules. And so when there aren't any rules, all you can do is bring your own sort of creative DNA to the situation. And whereas with music and with acting and somewhat with the structure of writing jokes, there are things that you can apply that will create some margins for you to live in. But when it comes to just sharing all your thoughts with people, it's just not the same as anything else that I've found where when you are just free flowing with like no rules, you can really sink or swim because I think a lot of artists need that structure and they will bring you something beautiful if you give them something to work within. And with stand-up, you just don't have that. So I learned my technique and my thought process and my strategy from watching people that I really admire. And then the rest, you you do have to teach yourself. No one can be up there with you. It wouldn't be the same art if they were. I look at some of my predecessors as coaches. You know, I definitely ask people that I've worked with what they think of jokes while I'm writing. I ask them what they think of sets after I've done them and I take their notes to heart. And even if I don't apply every note that they give me, the fact that the audience is there as a sounding board and then your peers are there as an even more precise tuning fork. So that way you're able to make real music with whatever it is that you're doing. Because some people will see an audience and if the audience doesn't respond to what they're making, they're like, oh, they just don't get it. And it's like, no, it's for them. It's for them. So they have to get it in order for you to be doing what you think you're doing. If they don't get it, you didn't do your job, you know? And if they aren't laughing, I'm not doing my job. So I can't just sit back and be like, oh, that joke was just so brilliant that they don't get it. It's like, no, I didn't write it well enough for it to be grabbed, you know? I totally agree. It's funny because Saint Desolée, as you may know, we were born in the streets. We were street performers. And that's very important to remember because people were not intending to see our show, you know. So they're just walking. They're going to the market to get the kids from school and stuff. So you have to grab their attention with something. And if it doesn't work, they'll just walk away. So you got to make it work every second so that at the end, they will put money in your hat. Otherwise, you will not eat. What was the first theme of your first ever stand-up number? And how did you choose that theme? So I lived in a bad neighborhood growing up. And it was mainly about how we bought an alarm system for the house, which is already insane because it's like there's nothing in here worth taking, <laughs> but we have it just in case somebody comes. And then we realized the alarm system worked because someone tried to break in. They triggered the alarm system and the police showed up four days later. 
and it went well. And then I just, after that, I was like, oh, that's a thing from my life that I can explain to people, get people to relate to that are not living that life at all. Because I went to school with kids that were pretty rich. So the fact that I could relate that to them was also, I think, such a powerful thing for me that I was like, even if I could not make it a job, because originally I went to college for lighting design and I was going to be a lighting designer for stage shows and for concerts and for all this other stuff. Um, And then it was either choose lighting design or choose comedy. And comedy just brought me so much more joy and I felt so much more artistically fulfilled doing comedy that... That's why I went into it. But yeah, that, that's as much as I can remember from my first set, to be honest with you. I promise you, every time I will see my alarm system, I will think of you. <laughs> Especially when it works. You mentioned about loneliness. And in some of your shows, you explore that theme that to be a, the only child and that you experience sometimes loneliness and social marginalization. Why has that proven to be a recurring source of inspiration for your work, that loneliness aspect? I think that for the most part, we're living in an age of loneliness. I think we're the loneliest we've ever been. And we're weirdly the most connected we've ever been. You have access to millions of people in your phone, in your pocket all day. Yet some people talk to no one. And when they do talk to people, they feel like no one's listening because everyone is so thirsty to get a, you know, a chance for them to speak. And it's understandable. If you feel like you haven't been listened to all day, you might not be uh, as keen to listen, but I think that that's the way that you cure it. You become a great listener, which means more and more people want to share with you. Through that sharing, you build community, and through that community, you eliminate the loneliness. And so I think in all of the things that I make, I want to point out that sort of thing, to point out that we were, you know, a community living separately. And I think that if any work that I do can highlight that you're not alone, because that's the number one slow killer of people in the modern world is just that feeling of isolation that we all go in and out of, because sometimes you self-isolate. Some people self-isolate to heal. Some people self-isolate to further their trauma because they're not ready to share. Like, I, I I understand it, but I think that it's one of the main motivators of a lot of destructive behavior is feeling alone. And it takes a lot of work against ego to realize that you're not alone because to be alone would mean that I, I Josh, singularly in the world am too bad, too mean, too uninteresting, too whatever to be loved. And it's like, I'm not that special. I'm, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a tall order to make yourself a person worthy of loneliness. If you are part of the world, then you must be worth the world, you know? So there's, there's something to be said for letting people know that the loneliness that they feel, as real as it is to them, parts of it are an illusion and that there are people around them ready to take them in and it's in all the communities that we find like people join every type of group for the same reason it's in search of community whether it's a church whether it's a club it could even be a hate group you're literally joining because of the loneliness that you feel and the community that you're trying to build i agree it's funny because Guillaume Liberté at one point was saying he's the founder of Sensei, the co-founder with Jean Saint-Croix. 
he was saying that you don't learn by talking, you learn by listening. But what you're saying is that you build a community by your capacity to listen, not by talking. And I find it really um, inspiring. You can definitely build a cult by talking. You're right. Mo- most of the real known cults, one guy talking. And he doesn't want to listen. No, he doesn't listen to anyone. <laughs> That's why it always goes south. Do you think that comedy has the power to heal? I, I think over time, yes. I, I think that sometimes there's an inclination for people to use comedy to not have to do work that's desperately needed in their lives that would improve it. So I think comedy can be a Band-Aid, and comedy is definitely a, a defense mechanism, if nothing else. But I, I think that for the most part, comedy has a healing power where you are able to finally share. And when you're able to finally share, then now you can really release. And once you've released, you're healed. And so that's that's the way that I imagine comedy having the power to heal. I definitely think it's a self-discovery thing. I don't know if you can laugh someone's pain away for them. It's something that has to be internal and has to take place in, in a person's own time, you know? Do you have personal experiences that you could share with us where you could actually feel the healing power of your work? So when I released my special this year, I talk about my father passing and everything. And that was still, you know, this really traumatic moment in my life. And and all of this stuff was going on at the same time. But when I was finally able to tell that story and really release it through the jokes I had written, I think that that was when I was finally feeling like healed from a deep scar that I had carried with me for so long where I where I've been working on processing his death because it was sudden and then also working on jokes but also how I feel about those jokes but also if I should feel bad for not you know I'm obviously not making fun of my father's passing, but I'm bringing light to the situation of how I felt during it. And I think that the way that I did it felt like a joke that my dad would laugh at, which I think is why it felt full circle. And it felt like I had as much as one can heal from that situation. It's like the thing that came out of this horrible tragedy is a joke that my dad would laugh at. And so I think that that feels, you know, that feels really complete. Can you share some of that story and and the humor that you brought to it? I'll give you the shortest version of it that I can because I think the thing ended up being very long. So I remember the first time I got paid to do comedy. This was crazy to me at the time. I'm pretty sure it was like $1,000 to come do the show. And this is like, I'm not that far into comedy. And I'm so excited that I am already planning how to save the money because I'm like, I'll just go ahead and take a bus because if I take the flight, that's going to cut into the money and everything. And I'm on the bus for hours and it really does like change me as a person. Like I'm like, I should have just taken the flight. This is crazy. And then this man was asleep next to me, but he was in that level of sleep where he like looked dead (laughs) and I don't know what to do. I don't even want to touch him to check for it because in my mind, if I check this person's pulse and they are dead, I'm not ready for what that is, you know, to my life. And then sure enough, they wake up, but they wake up 
by pooping their pants. Oh, my God. And they're screaming. And then he runs to the bathroom on the bus. And so then everyone on the bus is freaking out, right? And so... I, like, tell that whole story. And then I talk about how when I was, like, 26 at the time, I got the call that my dad was sick. And it it was, like, this life-changing thing because I had never really lost family super suddenly. I had lost people before, but they had all got sick, and it was over time, and I was able to talk with them and say my goodbyes and all that stuff. I get a call from the hospital because my dad called me the night before and I talked to him and he did not sound good at all. And they were like, his prognosis is really bad. Like, you may want to get here. And this is years later. I'm working at Tonight Show and everything. And I, you know, run in. I tell my boss. My boss hugs me and he's like, yeah, go. Like, do whatever you need to do. So I fly home and, you know, I hold his hand. I'm talking to him and everything. And I'm very grateful for that time that I got to say goodbye to my dad, you know? And a little while after he had actually passed, I went to a a party and I didn't even go to the party to party because I don't drink and I don't smoke. So I'm just like aggressively sober at a party. I'm just like very awake at a party, which is too much. So then while I'm at that party, I start feeling bad for being at a party so close to when my dad has passed. I'm like, is am I a bad person? Like, that's crazy that I would be at a party right now. And I'm, once again, I'm not fun. <laughs> so I'm not like partying. <laughs> so I'm just sitting there and then I start to, you know, like cry. And it's when I realize the process of grief for the people around you is exactly like shitting your pants on a bus. Because even though it's something that happened to you, it's something we all have to deal with. And so then I run to the bathroom and I make the same noises as that guy because I'm just crying the entire time. And then that's what, you know, that's what I've talked about in the special. But I felt like that was overall a story and a, an arc and a joke throughout that my dad would find funny. In a minute, I am going to continue this conversation with award-winning and renowned writer and comedian Josh Johnson, a conversation that explores how comedy can help us be vulnerable, unlock creativity, and understand our place in the world so we can heal and grow. Fans go first. Whether it's early access to seasonal deals or pre-sales, pick your tickets before everybody else. Sign up for Clubstick today and you'll be the first to hear about access to special events, pre-sales and discounts. Take a look behind the curtain and enjoy up-to-date news on all things Cirque du Soleil, including shows, artists and latest innovations. Visit CirqueDuSoleil.com to subscribe. Just a quick reminder, you're listening to Cirque du Sound, a brand new podcast from Cirque du Soleil, looking at the interdisciplinary roots of creativity. My name is Michel Laprise, and if you like what you're hearing, I hope you'll tell your friends about us and leave us a review. We would love to hear from you. Josh Johnson, we've talked a bit about your roots and how you got into comedy, but I want to dig a bit deeper into your philosophy because, well just like medicine, you seem to be able to use comedy to heal and help others through laughters. 
And this is something that we can see in our Cirque du Soleil show, Kuza. The trickster is a, a clown character. We always cast a dancer to do that because it's very physical, the way he's clowning. The trickster is the creator of the world, Kuza. He tries to help out another character called the innocent by leading them on a journey to discover their place in the world. And even though the trickster teases and plays tricks on the innocent, because it's the trickster, he also keeps a watchful eye out for him. He's both naughty and nice. It's a beautiful character. A lot of people love this character. So clowns have these two sides. They are troublemakers, tricksters, but they also make us laugh through humor and slapstick. Your writing contains a similar duality, we think. You often manage to transform social outcasts or even more menacing characters into someone more laughable. And that gives us the feeling that you'd get along with the trickster. So my question is, in what ways do you believe comedy can be a powerful tool for addressing social and political issues? And how do you navigate the fine line between humor and controversy in your work? I believe that comedy can be incredibly powerful with sort of sandwiching thoughts, right? I think that if, if you tell someone something outright, especially the way we live now, there's a filter that everyone has up. And whether it's a religious or political filter, there's certain things that as soon as you say buzzwords, there's no way you're getting in. And I think that there's some aspect of that that is just a person making up their mind and sort of fortifying their beliefs. And I think that it's important for people to have beliefs and take them to heart. And I think questioning them is important. So that way you can make sure you're still feeling the same things years from now. But I think that it's done a bit lazier now to where this is how I grew up, so this is how I'm going to stay. Or I came to this conclusion when I was 29 and I'm not changing it. And I think that comedy is a way of letting some of those aspects of how to live a different life or different perspectives seep in because everyone is willing to laugh. I feel like I've met very few people who do not like the way that laughing makes them feel. It's so important to me, no matter who the person is and no matter what they're saying, to let a comedian finish a joke just because misdirection and perspective are what we deal in. And I think you can think a joke is going one way and then it ends up having a surprise twist at the end or you you think you know what the person's going to say and they take you in a different direction or you think you already know all of your feelings on a subject and then someone offers a perspective that is um, incredibly unique. And so to me, those are the most important aspects of doing comedy. There's a lot of talk in comedy and around comedy about punching up or down. For people who don't live in that language, punching down would be joking on someone or like bashing on someone that has, I guess, a lower social class or less power or social standing than you. And then punching up is poking fun at people in power and all that sort of thing. My thing is, I don't believe in punching up or down as a, as a concept because I think that people are too dynamic for that. There's ways that I think people look at 
what I would say punching up as giving themselves excuses to do the same things that we don't like to do to people when we feel like there are margins at play working against them in society. And then people look at punching down as going for these easy jokes, which, you know, may still be funny, but the idea, I guess, is that this person has enough going on, right? My overall thing is that comedy, you know, when you go back to its roots in in the different cities in America as far as stand-up was happening, at least the advent of comedians being out here giving their own perspective, not just doing rehearsed jokes and one-liners. That was happening at a time of, of counterculture where we were questioning the morality of authority for the first time. We were questioning government. We were questioning religion and everything. And we were questioning social norms in a way that led to the sort of ideal that I think people thought they could make a utopia out of. You know, no no one thing is completely responsible or completely innocent from how we live in the world. We're still impacted by religion. We're obviously impacted by government. Everyone in a country lives under a government and everything. But I think our feelings of outcry towards those weren't really getting out there till the 60s and 70s and stuff when stand-up was having a real shift, right? I think the political engagement of comedians, it became a really powerful tool for stand-up because people saw where these roads were crossing over each other, where you could both be an, an entertainer and a political activist in a way that wasn't just an actor. Because before that, actors had been pretty politically savvy and stuff. But when they're on camera, they're being a whole different person. Whereas with a stand-up, they were out here protesting and then they were going on stage and being like, oh, also, I still think those things. And I'm going to try to make you laugh and try to express my ideas, right? The contrarian attitude is still one that you need to me to make very good comedy because most comedy is going to be poking fun at what is. So if you just comment on what is, you're just doing a document. But if you question everything that is, now you're making art, right? Because art takes us to those directions of what could be. What is art does not exist in what is as far as how we live. And that's what makes it special. And so I think that that has sort of turned on itself now to where there's obviously been several schisms within the attitudes of how to approach comedy and how to do comedy and what is comedy as far as stand-up goes. And I think that within those, there's a natural inclination for some to still be counteracting and contrarian to anything that's popular because there are things and there are people, groups that are popular from their sort of social standing or because they're marginalized. And so going after them feels like, oh, I'm, I'm attacking power in a sense. And then there's the traditional forms of power. There's government, there's huge conglomerate companies that have hundreds of thousands of workers under them and everything and are seen as the man and stuff like that. And then joking on them is still seen as going after power. And I think that for the most part, stand-up is, is finally becoming this art that is unique to the specific person as opposed to specific to certain techniques, which it used to be. Stand-up used to be you go up and you do several one-liners and you do just do joke for joke for joke. And now it's become anything that I say to you 
that I have jokes in is stand-up. So now the schism is spread into millions of splintered parts and a person's comedy is now their own genre of comedy, if that makes sense. And so their political activism, their political prowess is going to fall into their brand of comedy and whatever percentages you want to make of that. That to me is how people are engaging now and... For better or for worse, I mean, I I don't know what the right answer is. I mean, there are some people that use that sort of punching up, punching down. They just live by it as dogma. But then it's like, who is punching up and who is punching down and who has real power? And I understand we all think that we're doing the right thing. And so I get the pushback from people who don't do what we do, which is what makes the community special, is that we'll even try I'd like you to tell us about your process. Uh, you write for yourself, but sometimes you write for a host of a show. How do you get to know that person? And because you're writing for that person, so how do you get to feel who that person is and what will fit well in that person's mouth? If you are lucky enough to be able to watch a lot of their work previously, that's a great way because then you you can almost mimic their sensibilities. And then for the writing, in a weird way, the jokes are the easy part. It's everything around the jokes that that becomes difficult. What they would say to get to that joke is what's hard. Plenty of people would make the same type of joke, if that makes sense. Like most people would joke about their whatever, mother-in-law or whatever. But the way that they would say it, that expression of voice, that's what becomes very difficult. And that's why it helps if you have lots of hours of their own jokes or lots of time with them to talk to them, to see how they speak. Now it's easy. And then when you're writing for yourself, I think everyone's process is unto themselves. Just like I mentioned the DNA of perspective, I think there's a DNA of process where some people have to be on stage talking to you for the first time, expressing an idea, and that idea is how they come to the joke. And then some people have to sit at a desk quietly for an hour and just write out all their thoughts, and then they make jokes from that. And some people are just naturally funny in a way that can't be written. Any food for thoughts that, that you'd like to leave us with? I think that for most creatives, especially depending on where you want to go in your career or what you want to create, I think that there are people who will see the Cirque show and be like, I want to make something as much of a magnificent spectacle as that. But right now I don't have the tools or I don't have the know-how or I don't have, you know, all that stuff. And I think that it's important with where you want to go creatively and where you want to get career-wise to be equal amounts of persistent and patient. And I think that you have to be persistent because nothing comes without lots of practice and lots of failure. And you have to be patient because nothing worth keeping sort of comes to you overnight and everything. And so I think that for the most part, those two in combination will always service you well because persistence is the hard work and is the consistency that leads people to believe in you and trust you and want more from you and to see what you're doing next. And then patience is you accepting that in time, the audience will get it. 
because you're working on making it better for them to get, you know. I think a lot of people want to be more vulnerable in their art and more skilled and personal in their creativity. And I think that it comes with time. You have to be patient with yourself. The persistence of showing up every day just leads to results. Even if they're not always the results we want, you're always going to be better off a year from now from having thought carefully and being honestly vulnerable than you will from just trying to like sneak ahead, you know? Thank you. These are great words to finish this conversation. Uh, I want to thank you, Josh Johnston, for joining us today. And Josh, it's been a, a true pleasure. And there's a lot of things that I think we learned thanks to you. It's like you plant seeds in our consciousness and they will keep growing. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much. Join us for each episode as we delve into the themes and ideas that underpin Cirque Soleil's shows. Learn more about the roots of creativity and how to keep your eyes, mind, and heart open to new sources of creative inspiration. And remember, it can come from anywhere and anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Cirque du Sound. I am Michel Laprise. À la prochaine! Cirque du Sound is produced by Cirque du Soleil with technical and story production by Jar Audio. If you like what you heard today on Cirque du Sound, please subscribe, comment, and leave a review. 